Um, okay, we're hopefully we're operating. We'll have to see as uh, sometimes our plans go astray. But here we are, March the 22nd, 2020. Lecture discussion number 96 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. I keep making them all one book because I want you to recognize how they interconnect. Well, we have temporarily emerged from our caves of hiding to reestablish the mostly weekly cliffside broadcast. Uh, and, oh, I should say immediately, uh, I got one of the greatest letters of all time from Sherry in Illinois. And Daniel uh, from Texas also, uh, uh, you guys are writing me these things are amazing and I'm so appreciative. It makes it so much fun. Suffice to say that this past year has witnessed many interruptions, some the usual ones, the holidays, the Super Bowl, Bowl weathers, other things similar, the fragility of the beloved, highly trained religious professional. And now the Wuhan coronavirus pandemic. Continuity from lecture to lecture, from previous lectures to subsequent lectures, that's uh, pretty much been out the window. It's been real challenging to keep it going. The incongruity is more so prevalent, uh, especially these preceding 12 months. As everyone listening today undoubtedly is aware, the majority, probably 95% of all church services have been canceled all across the country. I will say quickly that uh, Anchorage is going to be in a lockdown quarantine until August the 1st. I'm sorry, made a mistake, April the 1st, which means that our uh, operation on the 29th will be outside the edict and we intend to comply. Uh, and so, again, compliance is given to all the governmental edicts to restrict assembly. And we are going to re adhere to the restrictions. And we have done so today. The auditorium is empty. I am speaking and no one is listening. Exactly the same as every Sunday, especially halfway through the lecture. My so-called methodology has remarkable equivalence to pharmacological insomnia treatment, has been pointed out to me many times. And yes, I've notified Medicare trying to monetize it, trying to present it as a cliffside insomnia cure, hoping that it'll soon be recognized by most providers and health insurance plans. So far, it's gone the way of my Coca-Cola plan. Anyway, I thought it best to today to begin with a few observations with respect to the current events. Both the uh, pandemic effect, or, uh, the pandemic itself, and the geopolitical responses and the cultural and sociological, uh, sociological impacts. Even, I'm, I'm going to go back a little bit, especially in the previous century, but uh, I'm going to uh, mostly the recent ones and all the events that relate to them. But again, I think there should be connection quite a ways back, as you shall see. I went through the 1964 Great Alaska earthquake. I'm sure most of you are aware of that. I also, as a young boy, had to get in line for the polio vaccine. And the fear of both of those, for children especially, but also for adults, was palatable. Polio was traumatic. And, uh, I, and so those were two experience, uh, events that I experienced. The earthquake directly again, I was in the midst of that. And polio, no, I didn't contract polio, but I knew people that did. And I knew the impact of them, especially young children my age. And the commonality is that immediately when you go through one of these things, like this coronavirus, are you having difficulty, Dave? Is that we need to stop? Okay, it's blurry. Yeah. It's probably best that it's blurry. Yeah. Have you seen me? I have a mirror. Blurry is the best thing I can hope for. Can't you can't fix it? Yeah. Okay. This is God's way of protecting the audience from looking at us. Can you fix it? No, hey, we're... It's fixing, it's fixing itself. Okay. Okay. 
I'm sorry that the picture has come into clarity for those of you watching. With great apologies. But where I was, where am I now? Whenever you have one of these kinds of things, that which is important, truly important, um, rises up and emergency, for example, emergency responders are important. The sewer, water, and food supply, the transportation of the food supply, distribution, that's important. Fuel, critically important. Power generation, those are related. Communication systems, the military, hospitals, family, friends, prayer. Ecclesiastes 12, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed. That there is no more, no greater piece of advice than I can give when these kinds of things occur. And conversely, those are the importance. That which is valueless likewise is starkly apparent. Hollywood. Athletic entertainment, performance entertainment, political agenda and and the maneuverings that come with those who seek an advantage constantly will never stop trying to seek an advantage. You can go, you know who the news stations or supposed news stations are. They cannot stop posturing and maneuvering even in a time of crisis. You seem to be dismayed again over the clarity. Okay. It is uncooperative, you're saying. Okay, so we have a blurry picture, which is not a bad thing, and, and we have some kind of sound quality. So, most people watch me with their eyes closed anyway, as I said, about halfway through the lecture, so it shouldn't be a problem. But anyway... I found it interesting how quickly the performance entertainment venues were canceled and the athletics uh, venues were uh, also canceled and that identified them. It rendered them immediately as meaningless, as vacuous, as insipid, as as worthless. Those who plant and grow and harvest food and provide power and emergency services, distribute the food, those people are essential. That's the biggest duh in the world. We should confiscate if we could. I know that's a governmental act and we should never do that. But if I, if I were king, I would confiscate the revenues of Hollywood and give it to the food providers. If I were king, an actress would make $5 an hour. I'd probably cut that. Actors would get less. These are the modern-day court gestures, and they should be compensated accordingly. Elevating those who are certifiably unimportant to this society has been a great harm to the, to the country, in my view. It has put them in positions of authority, and they are the least qualified to be so. Pretending, pretense, irrespective of one's ability to convincingly pretend is especially ridiculous, exposed when confronted by something like the coronavirus. And I've watched these people try to produce videos where they extol themselves and it's humiliating to them and they are unaware. Other things I have noticed Far more significant, but I had to rant for a little while because I can't stand it. Teva Pharmaceutical, the Israeli drug company, has given the United States six million doses of hydroxychloroquine. That, as you know, I'm sure everyone knows, that's the malaria therapy drug that is shown promising inhibiting capabilities with respect to the COVID-19 virus keeps it from attaching itself, its impact in patients. What I noticed is that Israel had six million doses of hydroxychloroquine. And that interested me. Why do they have six million malaria doses? It could be just simply economic, but they had them. But also pay attention to Israeli pharmaceutical advancements 
and to whom they are given and to whom they are not given. This is Matthew 25, 31 through, 30, I'm sorry, through 46. Who is a friend of Israel? Who is a sheep? Which nations are goats? All of that is a 75-day interval. That's in the book of Daniel, Daniel 12. That's how it fits. And I submit that this is going to be a significant factor as the end of the age of the Gentiles arrives. That ultimately is the topic today. There is an acceleration in the progression of pharmacological potential and efficacy with regard to all kinds of things. Cancer. Whenever this kind of, of emphasis is put on pharmaceutical advancements, and we are seeing an emphasis, an emphasis now I think is unprecedented in my lifetime, everywhere, everyone that has any kind of capability is trying to solve the coronavirus. Always that leads to other things. And again, the potential and efficacy with regard to cancer and aging, just to name two. Obviously, I'm interested in Alzheimer's given my family history. The speed at which these developments are occurring, the genetic manipulation that's, that is occurring also, as another such example, it's unprecedented in the post-Diluvian, post-flood human history. Notice how I conditioned that statement. We're seeing advances that have never been seen before post-flood, post-alluvian. I was mentioning to Dave, uh, convalescent plasma is being rushed into the fray as a solution to COVID-19. Immune response therapy is eventually going to be a bridge to other diseases and conditions, and it is getting an emphasis as it has no other time before. We've been told, as you know, Luke 17, 26 through 32, watch, therefore, for the eventual slowing of the aging process. It is a profound sign at, of the end of the age of the Gentiles. So there's my warm, fuzzy, uplifting introduction. I know everyone was anticipating more quantum tunneling today. Uncertainty principle, infinity, wave particle duality. I got one letter telling me so. And I'm assuming, I'm extrapolating it to, to imagine that it is at least 50% of the audience, though that's mathematically maybe unsound. I don't have my fake Coca-Cola today. I, I was in a hurry. I've never done this before. No, oh, I can't say that. I, I've, not, uh, I've not had a presentation to empty chairs. I just don't think I have. Mostly, mostly empty, but not, not like this. This is a little shocking to me, but I'll persevere. I know that everyone, if I can meet everyone, one guy... Hi, Daniel, in Texas. This subject that I did last week. Are we, oops, we've turned to, oh, I've completely disappeared from reality. Am I back yet? Oh, wow. Did you, did you solve your, no, you didn't. But you're worried about it, aren't you? No, okay, good. Because everybody's booing us now on the, by everybody, uh, everyone, I mean, both people. Infinity and its impact on certainty, uncertainty, sorry. Infinity, its impact and its impact on uncertainty is a personal favorite of mine. I've been thinking about it for many, many years. But let me ask you this really fast because I know people are craving this. I have zero and I have one. And then, of course, I have two, but I'm interested in zero and one for today. What is the difference between zero and one? That's my question for you. To rephrase it, how far is this distance between zero and one? Use your phones. Oh, wait a minute. The phones don't work. And no one is here. This guy that's fiddling with the phone may not even exist. And the laughter and the coughing that you're hearing is a fake recording like we do every Sunday. So, 
obviously zero and infinity have a relationship in mathematics. They contribute interdeterminacy. Interdeterminacy is a principle. It's also exactly the uncertainty principle. Both are discussions of freedom and will, much to the dismay of Einstein, who thought that there was only determinacy, not indeterminacy. What is, the in, what is infinity divided by zero? So what is the distance between zero and one? What is infinity divided by zero? I'll help you. These are all undefined mathematical expressions. And obviously anything that is undefined is of interest to the theologically inclined, the theological realm. Because it ultimately progresses to the question of who is the one that is undefined? Who is it that cannot be defined? Why is he undefinable? All of those are theological discussions. And they're fun, as I define fun. They're important to the church because they are, as I point out, when you get into infinity and determinism or indeterminacy, I can barely say it. When you get into those discussions, I won't write them on the board, but when you do, those are theological. Those are talking about Christ. Those are talking about the creator. Who is Christ? I was going to introduce today, my whole plan was to, before all of this, uh, no one can come thing happened on a mass scale. I'm finally equal to the other churches in the city. No one can come to anybody now, so I've achieved equality. I was going to introduce electromagnetic resonance, so Winfred Otto Schumann, the Schumann resonance, resonance, starting with inductance and capacitance. When I was a young man uh, and studying electrical physics, uh, I would work on these very sophisticated at the time um, uh, regulation systems for generated power, and, and all of them had relaxation oscillators in them, and that began my study of resonance. And we'll have to do that. I'll set up a resonating event for you. I'll have a, an inductor, and I'll probably put in a resistance, and I'll make it variable, and I'll have capacitance, and we'll talk about how we can make that into a circuit that will go to ground, whatever resonates in that circuit, and I can adjust it. That's the basics for tuning a radio a very primitive one, but that, that will allow me to eliminate resonant frequencies. And that's what the regulation system that I worked on for all those years was designed to do. A lot more sophisticated than what I just did, but that's a basic principle. So that's what I wanted to do today, because if it's important, John from Pennsylvania, hi John, suggested that we do nuclear electric resonance, Bloembergen. Uh, which means that we, we will do that. We must do that. And we will investigate MM, NMRI, Nuclear Magnetic Resonant Imaging, which you recognize as a diagnostic medicine tool device, but it's, it's far more than that. The technology is really important, uh, I believe, theologically. Anyway, whenever you're going to talk about resonance, you're talking about oscillation. Whenever you're talking about oscillation, you're talking about vibration. And all of that gets you to Genesis 1.1. Because, you see, something set the entire creation into motion. What set the entire creation into motion? If it begin, like I said... Motion and vibration are intricately linked. Obviously, it was a voice. So the question becomes, whose voice was it? What is the resonant frequency of that voice? That's a question that's been occurred for generations. Okay, that was fun. Maybe not. For today, because of the circumstances... We're going to do Revelation 6. Where's my eraser? Way over here. We are doing our best to keep our distance from each other, but that's nothing new. We don't really like each other here, so that was canned laughter. That wasn't a real laugh. Don't be fooled. She's just back there pushing a button. Anyway. 
We're going to do Revelation 6. That, this is the four horsemen. As you know, most everybody is now aware of Revelation 6. It's been in almost every, it's probably the subject of every church service today, or if it should have been. If it's not, the four horsemen is a subject surrounded by opinion. There is much disagreement as to their identity and to their timing. Those are the two issues that are the, that rise to the top and considerable debate as to what they mean. So all of those uh, are at issue today. In other words, there's no shortage of books uh, for sale. There's so many, in fact, that everyone can locate someone who will agree with them. It's a cacophonous condition indeed. So when you get into this subject, just recognize you will find, and I hope you research it as best, as most as you can, especially now, expect all kinds of, of uh, difficulty. Finding a consensus, there is none. So let's see if we can figure it out ourselves. I'm starting at Revelation 6.1, but I, should, I have to tell you this, that Revelation 4.5, 4 and 5, so we're going to be Revelation 6. Here's a surprise. In order to understand Revelation 6, we're going to have to back up because Revelation 4 and 5 are critical. Revelation 4, they're the substrate of Revelation 6. Revelation 4 introduces the four living creatures. So I have four living creatures that help me understand the four horsemen. And the, so that's in Revelation 4. And those four living creatures, they resemble the cherubim of Ezekiel 1.10. So we, excuse me, by we I mean me, I'm going to make the case that these, are, these four living creatures of Revelation 4 are of the highest angelic hierarchy. Revelation 4 also has 24 elders. I, don't, I won't put it on the board. We'll do it next time we meet, whatever that'll be. And these 24 elders are sitting, they're throned is the word, and they're clothed in white raiments and they have crowns of gold. So there's that to deal with and that's why we will backtrack into it. Revelation 5 is incredible. This is where the Lamb of God, and you should know who that is, takes the book. Now, many will have it so the Lamb takes the book. This is Jesus Christ taking the book. Revelation 5, 7. And he came and took the scroll slash book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He, let me write he correctly. He... Oops, that's too many lines. He took the book from him. Who is he and who is him? This is the triunity of God, Revelation 5, 7. This is reminiscent of Daniel 7, 13 through 14. It's not an accident. The Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man was just identified in the beginning of Revelation or Daniel 7 as the Ancient of Days. And now he's coming to the Ancient of Days. To him was given the kingdom. So the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and this Ancient of Days gives him the kingdom. I have him and he again. And they're both God. Because it's a triune passage. Daniel 7, 9 identifies Christ as the Ancient of Days. Also does Revelation 1, 12 through 16 and Revelation 20, 11 through 15. The point being... Yea, a point. We need a better recording of that. Thank you. Finally, we're getting some cooperation from the fake people. Point being that... Revelation 5 and Daniel 7 are both describing the same thing. That is the Ancient of Days taking the book from the Ancient of Days. The he taking it from the him. And what's happening here? What's, a, what's this book about? The Ancient of Days is taking from the, the book from the Ancient Days. And that is representative of the kingdom. So he is taking the kingdom I had a wonderful letter from a young lady in Texas 
who wanted to know about the kingdoms. In this case, this is the messianic kingdom or the millennial kingdom. There are five such kingdoms. I don't have time to review that again, but this is the messianic. And that is why Matthew 6, 9 through 13, I will ask everyone here. Okay, I won't ask anyone here. I'll pretend to ask everyone here, what is Matthew 6, 9 through 13? What is that verse? That is the verse in which the, it is the manner in which we pray. And it begins, your kingdom come, not completely, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done is talking about the Lamb of God taking the book. Revelation 5. The taking of the book by the Lamb is the kingdom being given to the Lamb. He now has the document. He's receiving the document. The Lamb takes the document. How do you take a book out of the him who's on the throne? How good a grip does the him who's on the throne have? Obviously, when you recognize that the Lamb is taking from he who is on the throne, the lamb has to be in equality. And that's, of course, the triunity being displayed for us, the mystery of the triune Godhead. The lamb receives the document that grants the kingdom. So Christ now has possession. And what does he do with the kingdom ultimately? He gives it back to him from whom he took it. That happens, as you might remember, our first fruits discussion Back during first fruits. So Christ now takes possession of the kingdom. What's he got to do? The kingdom isn't. Uh, once he has the, the document and the permission to take and establish his kingdom. What, what's going to result is the expulsion of those who currently occupy the kingdom without the book. They have no authority to be in the kingdom or to have the kingdom. Or to control the kingdom. So the scroll book, if you will, is the title to the property. And he has to expel. He has to remove those who are in the proper property. Uh, improperly. Or wrongly. And the angels sing because of this event. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. They sing, Revelation 5, 9. And then when the singing has ended, that's when Revelation 6 begins. So now we get to go. Start the sermon. All the other stuff was just to set you up for the months to come. So let's start. Let's go 1 through 11. Chapter 6. Now I saw when the Lamb opened up one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures, back here in Revelation 4 and 5, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a white horse. So <coughs> let's make a list. A white horse. Has a rider. I'm going ahead. Rider has a bow. Where are the arrows? Is the question you'll see the most. Now, when I saw the lamb open one of the book, uh, one of the seals, I and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a, lot, a voice like thunder, "Come and see." And I looked. Behold! Behold! It is a behold. Stop. A white horse. Why is that a behold? He who sat on it had a bow. Why is that a behold? And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering. Now, let me repeat. No one agrees on this particular aspect. You'll think they all agree, but they do not. When he opened the second seal, I heard the, the second living creature of the four living creatures saying, Come and see. Some will translate this as go. And then it gives the implication that the lamb is sending these. We'll have to get into that discussion 
as time permits, not today. And another horse, fiery red, fire. Did I spell that right? Yes. How that? How about that? Fiery. When I see something that is fiery and red, I'm back to those snakes, aren't I? With the with uh, Moses, the bronze serpent. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that that should kill one that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword when he opened the third seal i heard the third living creature say come and see and behold a black horse behold a black horse again it's a behold why is it a behold Every time you see behold, something incredible has happened. The fiery red does not have behold. But the black and the white do. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. In his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Wow, what's the meaning of that? Now, I'll get ahead of myself. They will say, the commentators, and we'll go ahead and discuss this in a minute, or in an hour, whatever the case may be, that the black horse is representing famine because it is a food reference. And there seems to be no food. A quart of wheat for a denarius. Three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. Very mysterious. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. So I looked and behold, another behold. I got three beholds. What would you have expected? This is a green. Oops. It's ashen. Some say pale. Most say pale. But the Greek demonstrates a greenness to it. So I looked and behold, a pale green horse, all compromised. And the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades, followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. And most people see this as... Uh, as disease... We're not totally sure about that. We're not totally sure about anything in this. We'll have to make a, an, an, come to a conclusion based on as many facts as we can find. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for, they, for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. Obvious question. How, long, how much longer are they going to rest until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. So, to repeat a little bit, the white horse has a rider with a bow and a crown who went out to conquer. The red horse removes peace from the earth, so the world is now at war. The black horse has this element of famine, and the ashen green horse is the color of death, a corpse. And there's a fourth of the earth killed. And this is where the problems begin, because you see, the question of when do these horses come has not been resolved, in my opinion. And they are very important. There's an accompaniment to that question. The question of when needs resolution. But then the question is, how long is the end or how long is the when, if you will? So now we have to go and start reading Matthew and Luke and Mark. So let's back up to Matthew 24. See how this all fits together, I hope. We'll start at, uh, let's see, 
Verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. It won't just be rumors of war and wars. It'll be nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famine and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. And all of these are the beginning of sorrows. It's the beginning. You remember verse 15, which is the abomination that makes desolate. That's part of this today, too, but we're not going to get to it. So now Mark 13. We'll just grab them all here today so that you know where they are and you know how they fit. Uh, Five through eight. Where am I? And Jesus answered them. Began to say, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am. If your Bible has he, get rid of it. I am. That's Exodus 3.14. And will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrow. Now Luke 21. I hope you're seeing the trend. The beginnings. This is the beginnings. This isn't the end. But do, but when you, 21.9, when you hear of Luke, when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilence. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. So, how long is the end? Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be famines, pestilence, earthquakes. Those are the beginnings of sorrow. Wars and commotions must come to pass first. The end will not come immediately. The end is not yet. Fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Repeating the question, when does the end begin? And we do have a clue for those who are listening who have long thought that I don't have a clue. I actually have one. The clue, of course, as you all know, I hope you all know, but there are many who don't. The clue to all of this is nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's the clue. That tells you. It's not just wars and rumors of wars, but it's nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And this is in the Hebrew. It's a Hebrew idiom, if you will, for world war. There has to be a world war. Matthew 24, 14, 24, 21, 24, 30. Won't put it on the board. Don't have time to read it. But those three verses, again, 24, 14, 24, 21, 24, 30, they specifically declare that the entire world will be involved. And for generations, the Jews have used this phrase, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, to mean world war. And they've never had to use it for almost all of their history until when? You are correct. From 1914 to 1918. 1914 to 1918, we had a world war. Then we had a parenthesis. We had a respite, if 
you wish to think of it that way. The world was at war from 1914. The world actually did this. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom from 1914 to 1918. And then again, after that parenthesis from 1939 to 1945, the world was at war. It's the same war. It's one war. We call it World War I and World War II, but historians do not. Keep in mind who was fighting. We had Germany. Uh, that essentially is Charlemagne. When the Roman Empire fell, Charlemagne took over and established it in France. And then eventually... Later on, the Germans took it from the France, French, and we had the German Holy Roman Empire. But let's just call it Charlemagne for today. It, it, it migrated up from Rome. And we had Charlemagne in World War. I see how that did. We had in the second phase of, world, of the World War, we had Charlemagne's uh, France, Germany, if you will. And that's not accurate. I know. Don't write me. It's the Western division of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, as you might remember, divided into two phases or two, two different operations. One went up into Europe, Central Europe. The other one went up into uh, Russia. We had the Franks and the Germans and we had the Russians. So I have essentially the, what's, what was established by Charlemagne seeking to control Europe in 1939 uh, especially but also 1914, seeking to control Europe and Africa in 1939. So if you combine these two, I'm going to combine them as I talk about them. I had essentially Charlemagne's Holy Roman Empire trying to seize control of Europe and Africa, along with Japan expanding into Asia. There was Hitler, there was Mussolini, there was Hirohito. And what was the resistance? Who effectively resisted Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito? Keep in mind, Mussolini had control of Rome. The resistance was Great Britain, which is the great lion. And the U.S. and Canada and Australia, which is the young lions. That's Churchill and Roosevelt, Australia's Menzies, and uh, Canada's William Lyon Mackenzie King. Those were the leaders at the time. Notice that William Lyon Mackenzie King is William Lyon King. There's a movie about him. Simba, I think, a couple of warthogs, I'm not sure. But those were the leaders at the time of this. One of them actually was, was a Lion King. It's hilarious. So again, to repeat, I have the Eastern Division of the Roman Empire, that's the Tsars. I have the Western Division of the Roman Empire, that's the Kaisers. Both of them mean Caesar. Thank you for the time. And they are, they are allying themselves. Germany, Italy are together. It's extraordinary. That's the Western division of the Roman Empire. The Eastern division actually allied with them. If you know your history, Joseph Stalin in Russia was briefly in concert with the Kaisers, with Germany. And it all came apart. And Stalin ultimately joined Britain and the United States, Australia, and Canada. The point being... A second point already. Gosh, how fast am I going? The first and only time in human recorded history post-Diluvian. Notice again that disclaimer, I, I, how I said it. The first and only time that there has ever been nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom, 1914 to 1945. That's the only time it has ever happened. And that is what Christ said. When you see that, well, now you know what time it is. Again, there's a suspension from 1918 to 1939 when Hitler invaded Poland. That's what launched it again. And that is the sign of Matthew 24-7, Mark 13-8, Luke 21-10, the first time it has ever happened post-flood in recorded history, a world war. Now, a couple of really interesting things to me. So that means everyone is asleep, including what's left of the audience here. Notice that they woke up enough to pretend that they've been awake all this time. The people here obviously have a career in acting. Oh, wait. No one wants that around their neck. 
the first phase, in the first phase of the World War, I had something amazing happen in 1917. That was the Balfour Declaration. Again, we're looking for signs of the end of the age of the Gentiles. When did the end of the age of the Gentiles, the beginning, that which is not yet the end, that which is the end has not come, it will not come immediately. That's what we're trying to decide here because I think that it is critically important for the church to be saying these kinds of things. But I had the Balfour Declaration. When I say declaration, especially when it's about Israel, because that's what it was, it launched, it accelerated, if you will, the Zionist movement. That was the return of the Jews to Israel. That happened in 1917. The second phase of World War of the World War was President Harry in the second phase of the World War was President Harry Truman, nineteen forty eight. He established the nation of Israel. It's the Truman Decree. He was so proud of it. He understood exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was the equivalent of Koresh of Cyrus. He said so. He recognized Israel, nineteen forty eight. I should give you the Jubilees really fast because you have an 1867 Jubilee, a 1917, a 1967, and a 2017 just currently. These are the Jubilee years, the 50s. 1867, I have the Habsburg Empire monarchy gave emancipation to the Jews. I don't have a... Emancipation is exactly what it was. It's it is the the terminology is uh, has the freeing of slaves. The Jews were given full emancipation in the Habsburg monarchy, Austria-Hungary. It's called the dualist era because they divided into two. That's why it's dualist. I get paid lots of no, I don't get paid hardly anything. Two. 1917, the, the Balfour Declaration then follows this 1867 emancipation of the Jews. They actually say things after 1867 in Jewish history. They, they identify 1867 as being especially important. 1967, I have the Six-Day War. 2017, I have something every bit as important as Harry Truman's 1948 decree. I have President Trump. And he says Jerusalem is the recognized capital of Israel. He also gives over the Golanite. Both of those are incredible. Four consecutive jubilees. I should also know that the people of Israel see the relationship between Truman and Trump and Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes I. Okay, what am I attempting? That's right, said no one. I'm trying to define the red horse and the ashen green horse. Because I think there's connectivity. We'll get into it today when we go back to Revelation. A lot of killing going on with these two horses. One-fourth. Pale horse. Looked and behold a pale horse. And the name on him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. And the power was given to them. Fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and hunger and death. And by the beasts of the earth. How did the beasts of the earth get involved in all of this? I'm endeavoring to define the length of the beginning of the end. That's the plan. To repeat the question, how long is the end? To frame the issue in another form. When do the horse and riders come? Are they listed chronologically? In other words, is, it, this, is, the, is this the order? I erased it. Is it the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the green horse? Is that the order that they come or not? Again, no one agrees. If you think that you have a position that everyone accepts, wow, wait till I show you. And the great theologians just stand back and smack each other over this men and women that I have great respect for that have influenced me tremendously. Henry Morris and Arnold Fruchtenbaum, wait for the ding. Out of their corners, they'll come. They do not agree. 
that when I found out that that was the case here, then I knew it was something quite special. Let's frame it in another form. Let's just take the black horse, for example. Famine. What, how many famines have we had in my lifetime? Well, let's back up to 1914. Let's see if there's any continuity between famines and the World War. We have the Holodomor of the Ukraine. That was the intentional starving of the Ukrainians by the Stalinistic Russians. 1930 to 1933, 10 million died of inflicted starvation. Ooh, that fits in between 1914 and 1945. How coincidental. Everything's a coincidence. We all know that. Is that an aspect? Is this the black horse? I erased the black horse, but is, is that Holodomor, that famine, the black horse? If, if, if one so decides, then the black horse and the rider has already come. It, the black horse came within the period of the World War. Question is obvious. Will the black horse, has he gone away? Or will he come again? Has he just withdrawn? The Young Turks, as you know, we have a group in this country calling themselves the Young Turks. The, the Young Turks of 1915 to 1917 were the, the ones who perpetrated genocide on the Armenians, the Armenian Christians. Two to five million murdered and denied food. One of the most evil groups of all of history. We have a political group in this country, blows my mind, who call themselves the Young Turks. Guess what? They're communists. Who's surprised by that? We had the Jewish Holocaust, as you know, 1941 to 1945. Six million Jews at minimum gassed and incinerated. We really don't know how to count that far. We have the Great Purge, the Great Terror of Stalin, 1936 to 1937. Notice how they all fit. Millions. Cambodia's killing fields doesn't fit. That's Pol Pot. Mao's China, so-called great leap forward, as much as a hundred million killed by the communist Chinese. Again, can't count him. So there's also there's been seemingly seemingly endless massacres in Africa. So I'm asking, did they come? Did they leave? Are you in Pol Pot in Africa? Hacking people to death with machetes, just to point out, things aren't necessarily going great. Are these the red, the black, and the pale green horsemen? Because as you know, 1918 to 1920, which affected my grandfather, he lost his wife and son to the Spanish influenza, which estimates are anywhere from 30 to 100 million. Is this, so I have world war, I have starvation, I have genocide, and I have pandemic. My goodness, all in that time period, is that the red, the black, and the pale green horsemen? What do you suppose the people who lived from 1914 to 1945 thought of all of this when they watched it come by? Especially when Hitler emerged as charismatic leader out of the Holy Roman Empire that was left over by the Germans taking it from the Charlemagne Empire, Holy Roman Empire. When they saw him come up and Stalin come up and Mao come up and Mussolini. Again, I have Mussolini allied with Hitler. I have the Romans actually with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire teams up with the Roman Empire and creates havoc in the world. Starts a world war. For the first time in history. And as evil as the communists and the socialist fascists were, they were not the white horse. I only had three horses if you want to say so. Some will not. They'll say you only have two. Let me repeat. Many theologians espouse an opposite view that the white horse and the rider are the Antichrist. You'll see many that say it is. And you'll see just as many that say no, it's not. And they argue over the Greek term for crown. Fantastically interesting 
if you want to know the Greek term for crown. There, in other words, there's no ubiquity in it as to the identity of the white horse and the rider. Even though I'll have a position. And if you lean towards a pre-tribulational revealing of the black, if I presented what I presented the pre-tribulational revealing of the red, black, and pale horse, an extendedness, if you wish, a tenure to it, a duration that's yet to be determined, a withdrawal perhaps, but still a, a presence. And I agree that the climatic era of these horses will be in the tribulation. But if that's your position, that what we have, what I've just put together is meaningful enough that you think, well, wait a minute, they seem like they've come. I can guarantee you that my father's generation thought that they had come. They were convinced they didn't have a nation of Israel. But they had the Balfour Declaration. So they made this thing work. But again, if the position is is that they have come and they have withdrawn and they are and they have come again and withdrew again. If that's your position, then the four horsemen are not chronological. They're not consecutive. They are instead concurrent, except for the white horse. They have spans of remission, if you will. 1945, I'm sorry, 1914 to 1945 was missing the horseman that we need to see, the white horseman, and also missing the reestablishment of Israel as a nation and the declaration of Jerusalem, the returning of Jerusalem to, as the capital to the Jews. Jerusalem, as you know, Genesis 22:14 is Jehovah Jireh Shalom. Jehovah Jireh Salam is Jerusalem. Jerusalem Jireh Salam, if you will. God provides peace. Abraham, Isaac. Again, Genesis 22:14, And the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. It was also missing. Daniel 9:27, Matthew 24:15. And I'm hurrying now. We think of a grand Herodian structure when we think of the temple. That's not how God thinks. God does not think as man thinks. His thoughts are not man's thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8. Nor his ways, our ways. So we're thinking there's going to be this incredible temple. It's going to be all gold. It's going to be huge. It's going to be amazing. It's going to take years and years and years to build. God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. His ways are not our ways. What's he going to make the temple out of? That's why we're studying Nehemiah. And Zerubbabel. I think you've got to expect the millennial temple to be made of wood. Which is handy if I need a job. God needs a guy that can run a nail gun and a compressor. I'm his guy. Got a chop saw. Got worm drives. I can outfit 15 guys with what I got. Or Lori. She's equivalent. Never mind. Hi, Lori. Are you still awake? Wake up! Huh. She's not here today because she doesn't like people. Ask, you think I'm kidding. You should meet her son, the oldest, voted most likely to live by himself in the wilderness forever. Hasn't worked out for him and he's miserable. That's only funny to my family and the people that know them. And they'll get even if I go home, which, hey, I can make a run for it. All you need in life is a fast horse. I got a suburban and a 20 minute head start. Where was I? The millennial temple will be made of wood. How do I know that? Why do I think that? Because Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, purposes to attach himself to wood. That is Psalm 22, 6. I am the worm. That is the crimson worm of Jonah 4, 7. It attaches itself to wood. And out, out from the red fluid comes life. That is John 19:17 and Matthew 27:40 to 42. Jesus Christ attached himself to wood. You may think the Romans did it. They can't do it. He's infinite God. And he chose to be a what? He could have been anything. He chose to be a worker of wood. There's a great deal of meaning there. That means that we're going to build it out of wood. What kind of wood do you suppose? He has a specific wood he wants. That temple is going to be built very, very quickly. 
And when that happens, you have a nation of Israel, you have a temple, you have Jerusalem, you've had, you had a world war, you have all of this pestilence and famine, destruction. Now here comes the climatic seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, would the musicians come forward? Ah, ah, ah. Oh, that was funny to me.